Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we left off a Two weeks ago on Easter, if you're visiting with us, we've been journeying through verse by verse the Gospel of John, and we are in the last little section of John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. As you're finding that, let me tell you that uh, I think you know this if you're familiar, if you've been around last month or so or for a while. John 11 is a famous chapter in the Bible. It's, it's one of the more well-known chapters because of the famous story, the famous scene of the resurrection of Lazarus. And that's what we dealt with on Easter morning, how Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And you might think, and that's where we ended in verse 44, Lazarus has come back from the dead. Jesus tells those that were onlookers to unbind him. And now you might think, if you're telling the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, that you might want to get a little insight from Lazarus. Lazarus, what was it like to be in the grave for four days? You were decomposing. What, what was it like? But that's not the direction that John takes. He goes immediately to the reactions of the people towards Jesus, and then immediately to the plot to arrest Jesus. And in doing this, in this sort of seemingly on the surface, kind of unspectacular portion of John, at least on the surface, we see this great irony that John uses in these last few verses of John as he's telling this story. So, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this passage. I've broken it down into three segments. And then after each segment, I have a a reality that I want us to notice. So three segments of Scripture, three scenes, and then three realities that I want us to notice. Before I read, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the first Sunday of May. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, the psalmist says, then we would have been swallowed up. But here we are. You ordained this day for us. So Lord, let us be glad and rejoice in it. As we come to the table of the Lord's bread and the cup after this message, I pray that believers in this room would feast on Christ. Now let us feast on your word. Do wonderful things. Show us wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, setting the scene, if you're with us for the first time today, we have just read and witnessed the resurrection of this friend of Jesus named Lazarus from the dead four days after he had died. Maybe the greatest miracle in the Bible. And what was the resurrection of Lazarus ultimately about? Not merely, remember this, not merely that Jesus has the power over physical death to, to make dead souls come alive. Of course he does. 
but even more significantly, that Jesus has the ability, the power, God himself in the flesh, to call those that are spiritually dead and make them alive. That's what Lazarus is ultimately about. So picking up in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's a word maybe you're familiar with. This ruling council of, council of religious elites that ruled the Jewish people. Of course, they were underneath the authority of the Roman government, but they were like the Senate of Israel. The Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, here's the first reality that I want you to notice. Notice notice the depth of spiritual blindness, okay? And we, remember, don't, don't get lost in the forest amongst the trees here and miss the bigger picture. We have just witnessed two weeks ago when we went through verses 17 through 44, the bringing back from death of a man physically, Lazarus. And here, just one verse later, notice that many believed We don't know what type of belief that is. Was that belief that endured to the end? Do they end up being Christians? Only time will tell. Only the Lord knows who these people were. But notice that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there are some that are still disbelieving Jesus even after they see a man that they know to be dead to be brought back to life. After all that he's done, Jesus is still doubted. This reminds us, I think, of John chapter 6. Don't don't flip there. But remember in John chapter 6, Jesus couples two of the more more well-known miracles in all of the Bible. He begins the chapter by walking on the water, and then he concludes it by feeding the multitudes from just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. And then he preaches a really hard sermon that causes the people to sort of walk away saying, I don't know, I don't know. And here we have Jesus bringing a man back from the dead. And still some people, what's on their mind is to go tell on Jesus because Jesus is a threat to the power structure of the Pharisees. Friends, this is just a a note, just an aside, uh, that we are so dead in our sins that even the greatest miracle of all, if it is not accompanied by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, will have no effect on a dead human soul. We we don't need to be uh, sort of wowed into salvation or into following Jesus. We need to be brought back to life. You can put on the greatest circus show ever, but if a heart is dead, a heart is dead, and it will not follow Jesus. Don't miss that. Notice just the depth of of spiritual blindness. 
And then don't, don't, don't miss the irony. It, it laced in this last section of John 11, John is going to use sort of this, he wants, to, he wants to juxtapose the statements of these people with reality. And notice in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees, what are we to do? Like, like all these, <laughs> this is the context, all these wonderful things that Jesus is doing is a problem for them. Well, how are we going to handle this? I mean, good things are happening. And you can almost see them with just like wrenching their hands. Like, how are we going to manage all of these wonderful things? The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the hungry are being fed, the dead are coming back to life. And somehow, in the minds of these people, this is in the category marked problem. What are we going to do? For he's performing all these signs. And then verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. There's such irony in that statement. And what's their concern? What's their concern? Notice verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So just a little bit of history about four or 500 years before the New Testament happened, before this happened, Israel, of course, is a, a sovereign nation, God's people in the Old Testament. Through the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, God is warning the people because of their disobedience. And he says, because you have disobeyed me, I am going to cause a nation to rise up and take you into captivity. And that's exactly what happens. The, the, the nation of Babylon is raised up. And that's where we read about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes. And he, he, they, they, they overtake God's people. And they're in captivity. And then God raises up another king, Cyrus. Uh, and, and there's the Syrians that come and they conquered the Babylonians and now they have Israel. They're in captivity. And then the Assyrians. And so there's this kind of you know, hot potato where Israel is underneath the thumb of these foreign captors, all under the sovereign hands of God. And ultimately now we find ourselves four or 500 years later and they are under Roman captivity. So Israel is in the land, but they are under Roman captivity. And the burden, the concern, the worry of the council, the religious leaders of Israel, is not that Jesus is doing these wonderful things, but they are fearful that Jesus is going to be so popular with the people that the regular people of Israel, the average Jewish citizen, is going to want to make him king, and this is going to cause the Roman Empire to squash Israel and to, to destroy them. So they don't, they don't want any rabble-rousers. This is like a, 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 they're causing a problem. They're going to potentially, Jesus is going to potentially bring unwanted negative attention on us, and it might cause Rome to smash us. And so that's what they're saying. The Romans will come take away both our place, meaning our temple, and our nation. And notice the irony. Jesus, we see later all throughout the New Testament, Jesus, in fact, is. He is the temple. He is the place that we meet God. He's the place. He gives us our meeting place with God. And yet, they're threatened by him. And ironically, they think he's going to, because of his leadership, cause Rome to crush them. And he will take a play, away their place and nation. 
And what's just an application before we move on? Just notice, just again notice the depth of spiritual blindness that it takes a miracle of God's grace for a person to see the person and work of Jesus. If you're a believer, it's, it's because God opened your eyes to the reality of what Christ has done on the cross. This is what John says all the way back at the beginning of John, John chapter 1. He's, he's talking about those that receive him and they believe in his name. He gives them the right to become the children of God. And then in John chapter 1, verse 13, he, he comments on how we come to see and trust in Christ, how we're born again in the backdrop of our spiritual blindness. He says in John 1, 13, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is just a stark picture of that. These people are so blind that even though a man has been raised from the dead, there, there's still many people that reject Jesus and even plot, and this is where this chapter is going, even plot to kill him. So here's, here's, here's just two applications from this. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, it's not because you figured it out. <laughs> It's because God opened up your, he caused your dead heart to live. He caused your blind eyes to see. He caused your deaf ears to hear. Now that may have happened to you when you were four years old or five years old or as a very young person. And he may in his kind providence have put you in a family that believed the gospel and shared the gospel with you. And those were the means by which God caused you to, to, to come to faith in him. He may have used a wonderful mother and father who loved Jesus and shared the gospel with you. But your testimony is the same as Lazarus's. He said to you in your deadness, come out. Okay, so if you're a Christian, regardless of how, when you became one, it's because you were blind and God gave you eyes to see. Okay, so that's if you're a believer. Now, the other, the other side, if, if you're not a believer and you're sort of wondering, you're, you're here, so I'm, I'm assuming, at least on some level, that there's interest in you. Or maybe you have a loved one that's not a believer and you're wondering what it will take to cause them to see this. I actually want this truth of God's utter sovereignty and salvation to give you a kind of hope because it means that nobody is beyond God's ability to save. He makes dead people alive. He makes blind people see. If you're blind, there's, there's only one, if you're blind, you're blind. If you can't see anything, there's not like levels of blindness. If you're blind, you're blind. If you're dead, you're dead. There's no levels of deadness. I'm not a doctor, and I did not stay in a Holiday Inn Express last night. But I do know that when that thing flatlines on that monitor that's hooked up to your heart, if it's straight, it's straight. There's no more deadness. If you're dead, you're dead. And so there's no case that's too far gone that God can't open the eyes of somebody to see. Okay, so take hope in that. And you're here right now, and, and maybe you think that God couldn't save a person like you. You, dear one, are dead wrong in your deadness. Can you consider that? <laughs> and so, so be encouraged. Because if you're, I think, I think, if you're even realizing that, I think that's, that's I, I think that's, 
probably evidence that God is actually making you alive. He's walking to your tomb and he's drawing you and he's about to say to you, Lazarus or whatever your name is, get up. Okay, so notice the depth of spiritual. Let's keep going. Verse 49. But okay, this is, oh, this is so rich. Oh, 49 through 53. Come on. This is so good. But one of them, Caiaphas, <laughs> who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So one of the priests, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the rulers stands up and he's going to criticize his own kind of posse for their determinations and their fear about wanting to put down Jesus. And he's going to, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Okay, what's going on in these verses? This is a, it's take, the story has taken a strange turn. Here's what I want you to notice. The second reality I want you to notice is notice, I'm going to explain this here, notice the compatibility of God's providence and man's responsibility. Notice the compatibility of God's providence and man's responsibility. There's this hidden hand of God and there's these devious plans of man, and they're bringing about the same thing. Okay, so let's, let's kind of break this down. First, there's this high priest named Caiaphas. And just note, again, that, that every word of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is working through the Bible writers, and in this case, the, the disciple John, to put down exactly what he intends to be put down. There's, there's verses like in Proverbs that says, every word of God proves true. Every, every jot and tittle is of importance. And, and there's this phrase in verse 49, he says that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. In verse 51, he's the high priest that year. Again, it's mentioned twice. Now Caiaphas ended up being the high priest over Israel for 18 years. And John wants to note that it's that year he's the priest. What's going on there? Well, I think maybe two things. One, this is a historical document. And so there's a reliability factor here that the Holy Spirit is intending for us to be a kind of witness of the authenticity of this account. This is a true historical document. But even there's a kind of spiritual thing here. Here, here he's speaking about, here's this high priest of Israel, who in a sense, even though he's, he's not a good guy, he's not fulfilling his duties rightly, he's missing the very one that the Old Testament scriptures that he is meant to teach and to administer is pointing to, but in a sense, he's still in this office of this Old Testament priest. He is actually speaking about Jesus, and we're going to look at what he's saying about Jesus here in just a second. He's speaking about that one Jesus that the scriptures talk about as the true and better priest to come. And so in a sense, 
It's like the transition here in the redemption of people. We're kind of going from the Old Testament to the New. Caiaphas is the high priest that year. And really, in about a week, Jesus is going to become the true and better high priest that dies on the cross and rinse the temple, the curtain in two, and becomes our high priest forever. So we see the ending of the priesthood of Caiaphas and the beginning of the priesthood of Jesus even subtly laced in this passage. So here's this man, Caiaphas. He's this high priest. He's, he's, he's a devious man. He's not a good man. And he gets up and he criticizes his fellow council members. And notice what he's saying, okay? It sounds, I mean, what he actually says, and this is the irony here, what he says is true. He says, don't you understand that it's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. But then look at how John then comments on what he says. John is going to interpret what he says. He did not say this of his own accord, verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Okay, what's going on here? I want you to see Caiaphas's words on two levels. There's this human level where Caius is making this statement, and he's saying basically, let's make Jesus our scapegoat. Rather than all of us die, rather than Rome getting upset at the the, the, the insurrection, the, the political unrest that's going on amongst us right now, let's originate kind of some scenario where we can put forward Jesus, put forward this, this rabble-rouser, this, this trouble, this, this, this guy that's causing us trouble. Let's put Jesus forward so that he takes the punishment for us and so that Rome will leave us alone. Essentially, that's what Caiaphas is saying, Okay. But Caiaphas is thinking on a, on a man-centered level here. He's thinking on an earthly level. And what, what, what John is saying in verse 51 is that he's actually not saying this of his own accord. He actually prophesied this earlier, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather in all the children of God. So even though Caiaphas was speaking on a devious man-centered, earthly level, Jesus actually does die for the whole nation. He does die for his people. So what Caiaphas says is actually exactly true, even though he did not really understand what he was saying. Caiaphas wants to use Jesus as a kind of scapegoat to get out of trouble with Rome. But on a spiritual level, Jesus is going to die for a much greater problem than Roman rule but God's wrath for all of his people, not just ethnic Israel, but all of his people that are scattered abroad, whosoever will name upon name the name of Jesus. Do you see the, do you see the irony going on here? Do you, see this, do you see this chief priest getting up, wanting to plot, to, to, to hatch a, a plot, an evil plot to kill Jesus and yet he's actually saying something that if you apply it spiritually is exactly what 
Jesus does for his people. And so you see, you see the sovereign plan of God and you see the devious plans of man bringing about the same thing, wanting the same thing to happen. Friends, this is what Peter says a a few months later and after Jesus' death and resurrection on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 23, he preaches this great sermon and he speaks about Jesus and he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, listen to this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So do you see what's happening here in, in, in Caiaphas' speech? He's saying, let's, let's, let's offer up Jesus to get the Romans off our back. And little does he know that Jesus is being offered up by the Father to get something far more dreadful off our back than Roman rule, but the wrath of God for our sin. And both of these things are happening. And God is using the decisions, the devious plans of these evil men to bring about his sovereign plan that was established before, Ephesians 1 says, before the foundations of the earth. Friends, here's just one little point of application before we, before we move on and finish. It's just, just notice how, how subtly, how beautifully God is in control. I mean, think if you're one of Jesus' disciples and you're hearing all that Jesus has said and you've even heard Jesus say, in John chapter 10, when he had that beautiful discourse about the high, he is the great shepherd and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so you're, you're thinking about Jesus is already talking to you about how he has to die. But then you see this Caiaphas talking about, well, let's offer him up as, as, this, as this sacrificial lamb in, in a sort of earthly sense to get the Romans off our back. And you may be wondering, how is God going to work this out? And all along, God is orchestrating all of this using the the, the decisions, the wills of real people who are culpable and responsible for their own decisions, and he's bringing about the greatest good in the history of the universe, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection, the redeeming of the people of God through the sacrifice of his son. So God is bringing about the greatest good through the greatest evil. He is in utter, exhaustive control over human history. Now that, 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 is, that is really, really encouraging. It's encouraging on a, on a huge, magnificent, cosmic, biblical level when we see it here in the scriptures. But it's easy to let something like that just kind of float up in the sky. You gotta, man, you, isn't it? Like, I don't think anybody in here, I, maybe you can greet me afterwards and tell me that I, you think I'm wrong on that. I'll be fine with you. We can, we, can, we can talk about it. I think most of you agree with me on that. Like, yeah, praise God, God's in control. Look at he, he says these incredible things about how Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, and 
We see how God uses Caiaphas and all these wicked priests, and yet he's bringing about, and Jesus goes to the garden that we're going to read about later on in John, and there's all this kind of stuff, and we're marching towards the cross, and we just see human history moving in this way. God is in control. God is in control of these massive, cosmic, huge, eternal things. Yes, God is in control. Yes, God uses real events and human responsibility. But oh my gosh, this Tuesday something happens to me, and all of a sudden everything is spinning out of control. It, it, so my point is, is, let's confess our weakness. It's, it can be really easy to see things 30,000 feet in the air on such a grand scale. And it can be really, really hard to see them on Tuesday morning when the diagnosis is bad or the child rebels or the marriage is suffering or the sin that you thought you were done with keeps rearing its ugly head. And here's the challenge of sanctification. In that moment, it is very, very easy to lose perspective and conclude that God is not only not in control, but disinterested, and I'm just being flung around in the spiritual universe, and I am getting ravaged. Am I the only one that has those thoughts, or is this a safe place to just, okay. Am I doing self-therapy again, or, or, is, this a, or, is, or is this a group session? Uh, okay, all right, it's a group session. Okay. But friends, how do, we, how, do we, how do we bridge that gap? We bridge that gap by seeing this truth, grabbing onto it, and then pulling it, pulling it down by prayer pulling it down by prayer into our Tuesday morning. Lord, you, you, you orchestrated, you orchestrated the greatest evil to bring about the greatest good. So I don't know how you're going to do that, but surely you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, I pray that I would rest in your kindness and your providence and your sovereignty towards me in this chaos right now. And, and, and if it's any more complicated than that, friends, then, then, then the Christian life is too smart for me, but I don't think it is. I think we can do that. But it's, it's friends... This is not a, this is, this is, it's, it's the discipline to do that. It's the discipline to do that. And not run off to, you know, ding. Oh, there's this text message or this email or that Netflix special or this or that or that. We live in an age of distraction. Can you discipline yourself? to make that true in your life. That's, 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 that's life. Verse 54. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. Okay, so we just ended on, they, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Notice the timing of this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests, verse 57, and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So this final thing, I, reality I want us to notice is to notice the inevitability of the cross. Notice the inevitability of the cross. This is where we're going. And John is intending, I believe, to use all of these ir- ironies. They're going to the Passover. They're going to purify themselves. They're looking for Jesus. What's happening here? We're, we're marching headlong to the cross. And even though we're only about halfway through the Gospel of John as far as chapters, we're actually really approaching the last week of Jesus' life. We, we're, we're, we're right towards the end of his, his life, which is what the remainder of John is, is going to record. And notice that they went to this Passover. And there's this great irony here. Jesus is this one that they are, they are ushering towards this trial that they're going to sentence him to death and they're going to put him to death. And we're doing it on this Passover, which is this Old Testament feast commemorating the rescue of Israel from Egypt and how God rescued Egypt from the blood of the lamb on the doorpost called the Passover, which is the very thing that is pointing to the very thing that they're bringing about through their devious plan. I want to I spend just a moment just to read a few verses out of Exodus chapter 12, and then we'll, we'll come to the Lord's table. Notice, I just want you to see this rich Old Testament picture. So Jesus is, is, is being accused by them. They're wanting to hand him over. They're wanting to crucify him. And that's where we're going. And this is all happening on the Passover. They're wanting to kill Jesus. And remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus at the beginning of John in John chapter 1? Here's the lamb. Behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And here we are coming down to that week, the Passover of the Jews. They wanted to purify themselves. They're looking for Jesus. And what is this Passover about? In Exodus chapter 12, Israel's in captivity, in Egyptian captivity. They've been in slavery to the Pharaoh for years and years and years. And God raises up Moses, this deliverer. And God says to Moses to tell the people of Israel after all of these plagues to gather together get a a spotless lamb for sacrifice and to sacrifice that lamb. And then in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 12, God tells Moses, he says, then they shall take some of the blood from this spotless lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. And anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through 
the land of Egypt at night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Do you see how rich the irony is? They were in Egyptian captivity, and God rescues them through this sign of this lamb, and its blood spilled and applied to the doorposts of their hearts. What's that pointing to? It's pointing to Christ, who now again we see God's people again in captivity, Roman rule, and they're wanting to somehow avoid Roman punishment. And so they're going to, at least in their earthly devious plan, offer up Jesus as a sacrifice to spare them from Roman judgment. But in reality, what is Jesus going? He is the spiritual application of the Passover lamb that doesn't merely save us from Egyptian submission, or from Roman subjugation, or from any other temporary ill in our situation that we may face, but His blood, His flesh, saves us from the wrath of God. And here we see Jesus on this Passover as these Jews lost in their spiritual blindness, seeking to purify themselves, even looking for Jesus, wondering whether he will come, about ready to crucify him, thinking that it will save them from their problems when they're really missing the problem altogether. Oh, friends, may we not be blind like this. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in coming weeks, we will get to the end of John where Jesus does die on the cross and he is this perfect spotless lamb. He is not only our sacrifice, he is our sustenance. The blood applied to the doorposts of our heart by faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ, is what makes a person right with God. And not only is the blood applied, but we feast on Christ. We eat his flesh, spiritually speaking, and we do that when we come to the table, which we're going to do right now, friends. This, this is the very heart of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, to come to the table and to trust him for his blood and to trust him for his life, and to feast on him. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and the band is going to come and lead us. And then Tyler will lead us to receive the bread and the cup together. After I pray, if you are a believer in Jesus, and you're part of a gospel-believing church like this, whether or not you are part of this church or not, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you believe this same gospel, you're welcome to come to this table. If you don't believe this, if you're not yet trusting in Christ, if you're not a born-again Christian, we don't want you to receive this meal with us, not because we want to isolate you or to make you feel separated, but because we don't want you to do something that you don't yet believe. It would be inappropriate for you 
to confess along with us that your only hope is in what Jesus has done on the cross. But we do believe that that is your only hope. And so if you've not yet trusted in Christ, and you're thinking about these things, before you leave this room today, I pray that you would find somebody that you know to be a believer and that you might talk to them more about it. Meet with one of our elders at the table and get this little book called Who is Jesus that will help you understand it more. But if you are a believer, let's, friends, let's not go through the spiritual religious motions now. Let's feast on Christ together. We were blind. He made us see. He alone gives us life. And that's what we confess when we take this bread and cup as Tyler will lead us. Let me pray. Lord, take your words and use them for our spiritual good. Humble us. May we see Jesus. May we trust in him and be satisfied with him. In Jesus' name, amen.